You're listening to Unscripted with Alex, a podcast that empowers young families to make choices that are best for them and their children. Welcome to Unscripted with Alex, Joe. Oh, thank you so much for having me on here today. I'm really excited to be here. So this morning, listeners, we've got Jo from Core of Wellbeing and she's going to be talking to us about mental wellbeing and resilience in our younger age group. So we're kind of going to be targeting or talking a little bit more around the primary school age children. Can you start off just by telling us a little bit about your background and what you do? Yeah, I'd love to. And I was hoping you were going to ask this question, actually, because I'd like to tell a little bit of story, which I think might actually help to bring us into the whole area of resilience and working with young children. So it was about 30 years ago now that I first started working in childcare settings. And so I believe that my experience before that, so lots of adverse childhood experiences and, you know, different things and that had happened, I guess, in my early upbringing that actually, you know, could have tended me towards, I guess, a negative outcome or a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. But I really believe that meaning and purpose of actually working with children and families actually gave me a sense of meaning and purpose. And so I continually, I guess, developed those skills and went on to not only want to understand, well, what's all the labelling with children? Why are we seeing children with all these problems instead of, you know, what's going well with them? And also, you know, helping families with a, in a really different, compassionate way. So I guess it's, uh, it started to give me that meaning and purpose, but to really make a difference for children. And with that, I obviously went on to not only just run childcare centres, come down to the southwest and and work with great people running family daycare centres and building up their skills and resilience as well to then become a psychologist so I could really make more of a difference. So, And the way I work with, I guess, my earlier training in psychology was what's going wrong with people, a real deficit model. But probably about 10 years ago, Crystal Lee and myself, my co-founder of Core of Wellbeing, we started to study diploma in positive psychology and look at the science of wellbeing and flourishing. And it changed the way, I guess, we work with children and families from a real strength-based, you know, developing that flourishing and how can we be our best. So it changes the way we look at children, we fan their strengths and how how they can be the best versions of themselves. So it's a great way to work. Mm. So so that's kind of it and a little bit yeah. of neuroscience as well, yeah, like right. to understand the brain and behaviour. So. so the way that the brain's modelling and remodelling mm. and changing, mm. is that what you mean by neuroscience? Yep, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. You said sort of you started off seeing adversity and I think that's the thing, right? In the world <laughs> there's going to be challenges and we can't protect our children Mm. and cover them from all these things. They've got to, I suppose, the challenge is to try and see how they can move through the world and build their toolbox to get through. We are seeing, it seems, that Mm. we're seeing higher rates of sort of anxiety and depression in teens. And this seems to be even trickling. I'm seeing in my practice even prescriptions for antidepressants and things in the primary school age children, so even younger How prevalent do you think depression and anxiety is in this age group? Well, it's interesting because if we look at the the research and the literature, it was actually increasing by about 20%, and that was before COVID. So, um, So when you start to look at those kind of stats and then 
what might be now. And I think we'll start to see those rates really increase as well. So so we are seeing that they're yeah, definitely increasing. So seeing them increasing as a spin-off from COVID or just general life things? I mean, there's so they talk about, you know, adverse or ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. So whether that's trauma, it can be COVID pandemic. So definitely we're seeing an increase following that as well. But I think there just seems to be a lot of disconnection as well, family disconnection. People are so busy rushing and trying to just be in the world, like to get to things and work. So I think those kind of family pressures are are having a significant impact on children. Mm. Do you find yourself constantly reaching for sugary foods? It's no secret that eating too much sugar can wreak havoc on your gut health. Not only does it feed bad gut bacteria, but it can also cause inflammation and damage to the gut lining. Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol is here to help. Our simple four-week reset program is designed to remove triggers and unwanted microbes, supporting you through your sugar hangover and repairing the gut. So why wait? Start feeling better today with Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol. In the younger primary school age mm. kids, we might be thinking, oh, why are they depressed or why are they anxious? What are they worried about? Like, you know, they should be running around the playground and all of that sort of thing. But what sort of pressures are they actually facing? What can we become more aware of that they're sort of seeing in their day to day? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, as soon as little people start to develop their brain architecture, they're, you know, sponges like the wet cement, aren't they? Like we can imprint all sorts of things. So if you've got, you know, first of all, families that are disconnected so they're not getting those connections. We'll see behaviours, I guess, play out in the in the schoolyard. So where maybe they're, they don't have those relationship skills, you know, they don't feel maybe safe in themselves so they might be acting out towards other children. So it could be in the form of mean behaviour, bullying or distress and withdrawal. So as soon as you start to see any of those kind of, you know, behaviours, you want to kind of be really curious and and take that lens of looking at what's underneath. And I think that's what sometimes is missing. You know, you think of the the iceberg that sits outside. We mm. see the 10%, but when we start to go, and that might just be a hitting out behaviour, but what's actually underneath that? What's that child living with? And I think when we take the time to have those relationships with little people, we can see there's a lot more to their story than just treating the behaviour. So when you're saying you're seeing disconnect and stuff in the families, you mean like at home, like the parents are, you know, maybe on the phone or busy Mm. on social media um, watching TV or doing, you know, even just being a parent and cooking tea and things like that, which is hard to obviously you've got to Mm. do all those things of clean the house and do the washing and all of those things. But then is that what we're sort of seeing that we're not spending enough time with the kids yeah. And I think I think there's definitely the poor time and you know lots of children will say say to us and we'll see it they're just rushed from one thing to another so mm-hmm. whether it's what rushed to the clinic for psychology or coaching mm-hmm. and it's like they get there and it's just like rushing from one thing to another. So there's definitely I think this whole busyness that's impacting in the rush rushedness as well of families trying to do so much with maybe small tribes, like we used to have bigger tribes of families Mm. to help. But then I think there's also, there's a disconnect with the social media and people on phones. 
We're definitely seeing that on the increase and then that's how that's being modelled to children. It's a tough conversation because we can all see that it's difficult and we've been put in this social experiment where we didn't get the kind of rules or the boundaries that kind of go with knowing how detrimental those impacts were going to be on children and families in particular. Yeah, I always wonder about that when, you know, um, I've only got, I've got a toddler at the moment, he's 21 months old and, you know, we, I'm not really on my phone that much at home because, well, for me, I feel like there's no time to be on the phone because <laughs> you've got a toddler running around, got to be watching them. You know, when we do pick up those phones, because we do need, we do use them often still a lot more than what we should, I always wonder, what is he thinking, you know? He's seeing either me or if it's not me, he's his dad. There's always one of us probably on our phone. I, I think there's probably not a lot of time when <clears throat> but we're both not on our phone. What are they thinking? They're like, oh, so that, that's what we, we just, do. yeah, we walk around with that in our hand all the time. That's, that's mm-hmm. life. When you, when you think about how children learn, they learn through, they learn through modelling, through experience, through engaging with the world, and that's the most powerful impacts of how children can learn at their best is actually you know getting out and really engaging with things. But if they're seeing, oh, mum's smiling, oh, maybe she got a like, or you know, mm. there's, there's all those dopamine effects as well, and that's what they're learning. They're going, well, that's what we do. That's where we get our enjoyment and we will go on to that. So they go there and then, you know, these phones, these devices have all been, well, it's all the apps that go with them. The phone itself wasn't designed to keep us on there, if you look at the history of the phones. But the apps are designed to hold them in there with that dopamine. They're very cleverly um, designed. Mm. So it's tricky to, yeah, for adults. If it's tricky for adults to get off, how on earth are the brains of developing children going to be able to regulate that? It's just yeah, it's just a lot to ask. Definitely. And we're going to get into that as well in a second mm. around the modelling of the brain and using technology and all of that. But while we're, we're on this topic, do you have any suggestions on what families should be trying to do to build more connection in the home? Is it like come home and put phones maybe in a lockbox away? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, when when we're working with families, we're always, first of all, identifying, you know, what what are your values? What are the things that are most important to you? And it makes it really easy if you say, well, if a family comes in, they say, well, family is most important. You know, having time and connection and things like that, it's like you can actually start to ask, well, how close are you to that mark then? Mm-hmm. Is your behaviour lining up with that value? And if it's poles apart, they kind of get to have a look at that and become really mindful. And when they're talking to children about those particular values, they could be saying things like, you know, it's really important for us to, we value family connection rather than disconnection through screens. So this is why we're doing this. We want to, and then in, in, I guess, having times where, yeah, they do get put aside, there's really, you know, some people I've been seeing, they do tech-free Tuesdays or, oh, wow. you know, completely abstain through the week and, you know, have some time on the weekend. So it's about connection, nature, meaning and purpose, which well, I think we'll talk a lot about with resilience as well as yeah. they all connect yeah, deeply. Yeah. And a little bit before, you mentioned about some of the behaviours and things that children might start to show that they are having trouble um, in their 
at school or in their their life. And you had sort of mentioned about the 10% at the top and um, trying to get underwards and see what's happening underneath. What are some behaviours that we might, parents can maybe become a little bit more in tune with that might be a sign that they need to support their child's mental wellbeing? Okay. I think it's anything that's unusual. You know, if they're starting to spend maybe more time alone in their in their rooms or you know, seeming quite agitated or sad or even the the, the worrying a lot, you know, because mm. when the little minds start to worry a lot, it says a lot about possible, you know, um, anxiety developing as well. So, so I think, and if they're obviously showing aggression towards parents or other siblings or other children as well, there's some pretty telltale signs that they actually need you know, some support and to look underneath with that curious lens of compassion, mm. what's happening here. And when you're saying things like if they're showing worry, how would they be showing worry? Do you, is it more in their language that they're mm. using? Sometimes it's, it's a good question, actually. Sometimes it can be in the language, like, oh, I'm scared of that, I don't want to go there, or it's full avoidance, like there's those mm. avoidance and you can't get them separated from their important caregiver or to school or to fun things that they'd usually be doing because then you'd start to wonder and actually ask the questions, oh, you know, like what's what's happening or, you know, what's your, are you feeling worried about something? So I think giving them the emotional tool and language is really important as well. So, oh, is that worry? Because they might not be able to actually put a label to the feeling too. So the more we do that can actually help them, oh, that's that's fear. Oh, that's that's you feeling scared. Okay. And then you get to mm. understand. And then once they can talk about it, they, they get really good at telling you all the things that they're worried about. Right. So it's potentially the start of showing some signs of social anxiety, mm. potentially even. Yeah. And uh, fear. Mm. Uh, okay. So that's really good. That gives us some real practical things that parents can actually look mm. out for. Because mm. I think it's quite Maybe relatively easy just to say, watch for, you know, X, Y, Z. And you think, well, what what really is that? And how how close attention do I need to be spending? And I wonder, are they getting feedback from teachers and things around that? Are teachers trained to, I don't know if this is a question you can answer, mm-hmm. but are teachers trained to be watching this and feeding back? I think it's um, now because it used to be the school system curriculum was very much based on IQ. How mm. are we measuring people's intelligence Whereas now there's so much strong, I guess, research to, to validate actually how we look like measuring people's well-being and emotional intelligence, which we call EQ. And it sounds it sounds tricky, but it's really simple. It's about, you know, having the tools in classrooms um, to be able to, you know, check in, talk about building their emotional language toolkits again, because it can be such a difference and and actually help them to develop really positive relationships with the children. So more schools are doing it. We've been working with some schools actually in um, developing and teaching the emotional intelligence. So I think it'll be a lot of schools are looking at it now and seeing, especially post-COVID, yeah. <laughs> the relevance of making sure their children are doing well so then they can learn. It's like a foundation. Yeah. Mm. And I suppose having time, uh, well, maybe not saw a bit of it here and then obviously in bigger cities they would have seen a lot more of it where, you know, the kids have been home and away from school so they haven't had that interaction and then going back into the classroom and being around people again, that would have, I'm sure, brought up some fear and anxiety. 
Because I guess you, you imagine like you've gone back to the, sometimes we can't say it's every child has a sanctuary of safetyness at home, so we have mm. to be clear with that. But for some students that are at home, they're in the safety, the comfort, we're really routine and habit, like we get used to that and then it's like, hold on, I've been watching all of this news and what's going on in the world doesn't look so good. I think I'll just retreat here. Probably Melbourne's a good um, indicator of that. They really struggled to get some of their students back to to school there. Not Mm. so much for us here. Yeah. So we've done now quite a bit of talking already around technology and how that does impact the children. So how much are we really seeing this impact their brain development and I suppose around where you were talking with neurodevelopment? Mm. Well, it's changing everything. And this is, I guess, where, you know, this whole social experiment of putting something out there and then a scrambling. So the research is is really clear and evident about how much it's changing the brain structure. So it's things like children are spending roughly seven hours a day on screens. So, so I think when you just start to think about that and think about, well, what actually are they watching? What's the influence? And so we can say there's a difference between usually what girls and boys are watching as well. So boys will be gaming more and that's just what the research is finding. And so if you've got people, um, young children, who their brains are so vulnerable to, you know, being imprinted like the cement, if we use that as a kind of metaphor, and they're seeing a lot of violence there's, some, there's a lot of research that's actually saying it's changing their cognitive biases towards more violence. So where you might just usually be, I know, going along and, you know, somebody accidentally knocks into you, because they've been practising the violence in the games, mm. they're more ready to actually just do that. It's like a practice. It's like if I was practising basketball, I'd probably, you know, get it in the hoop, you know, mm. more so. so. So then they've got this tendency towards, I guess, um, violence. And the violent stuff is probably concerns me a lot because even when we see in in the schoolyards and talking to teachers, which we do a lot of in our work as well, that um, they're seeing that violence just seems to be the common go-to and no one's distressed by it. I think, you know, when I think back to school, if there was a fight, I'd be like, oh, my God, there's violence, and the parents would be mortified. We'd all be going, this isn't okay for this to be happening but we're all desensitised and we're becoming, and that's the thing they're finding that is changing in the brain as well, that desensitisation. We're no longer shocked by this. It's just a normal kind of thing. So then we're going to be less willing to help others who are struggling or suffering in violent situations. So the flow-on effect you can see, mm-hmm. and that's just, I guess, behaviour. But then when you go back to what that does to you know, developing brains, they're saying there'll be like a thinning of, I guess, you know, some of the white matter. So so the cha- the brain changes and less lightening up in the hippocampus and learning and memory parts of the brain as well because they're not getting, if they're spending so much time on screens, they're not getting that richness. You think of when you go out into the sand pit or you're in nature, mm. you're actually, I don't know, just really engaging all your senses and you're playing and so it's a really different kind of I guess, learning for the brain. Yeah, right. So when you're outside, you, you're hearing things, you're smelling things, you're feeling mm. different things. Mm. Some little kids will be tasting different things, eating the sand. You're eating the sand. <laughs> I'm happy for them to eat the sand rather than be on a screen. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's interesting that you've said that because obviously like 
even with TV that adults are watching, you know, with Game of Thrones and all of those mm. big shows now, all really based in violence and it's all based on way back in the mm. day when there was violence and we've mm. obviously moved on from those times. But all of the gaming is still around that. It's not it's, what we do now in society. And it's really interesting because there's a real difference between, as people say, well, back in the day you'd watch TV, but TV, watching TV is passive to the brain. So it's a different, I guess, set of um, attentional skills in the brain that's being used, mm. quite passive. But when we're actually engaged in social media or gaming and things like that, it actually activates um I guess, the stress response, the sympathetic nervous system, and it's an active process. So it's kind of changing the brain that we're always kind of wired, I guess you could say, and on, and it's actually using, you know, more cortisol, adrenaline. So it's so they're different, they're different mm. parts as well. But again, you're completely right. If there's watching, even adults watching a lot of violence, it's desensitising mm. the brain. Yeah, so gaming and things, you're really being drawn into being a part of the experience. Mm. Mm. And it's interesting you said about the change in white matter. So the brain is actually physically the changing. The is changing. Yeah. yeah. And what about girls? What are mm. they sort of seeing? Well, I, I, can, I can kind of add to the, the brain change as well because these devices and apps and things like that are actually designed to actually tap into the reward system part of the brain, which is the dopamine. So it's a perfect, I guess, segue into talking about girls. So you think about if, um, you know, because we're social beings, we want to be included Mm -hmm. and then you're getting all of these images that are presenting to girls and it's like, and it becomes about how we look and who we are and getting the perfect photo and, and it's all about the likes. So every little like that they get, you know, this is being liked, this is being liked, is a dopamine. So it's hitting the reward centre of the brain. So this is how I feel good rather than feeling good through maybe connection or going out and playing sport or, you know, being with others. We're getting so much of that dopamine, which is affecting the addiction part of the brain, I guess you could Mm. say. Gosh, that's so scary to hear that's Mm. how it's, how things are coming along. And what about like with that addiction side of things? Because I had heard that there's potentially causing an increase in addictive behaviour because of social media. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And they're seeing, I guess, more and more of that now as well. Like, and there's, you know, there's specialist clinics that are just dealing with gaming addictions or Mm -hmm. social media addictions. And I think when you start to, you know, have those kind of clinics pop up, it's like, okay, we've got something to look out for here. And I think we're still not really seeing the full impact of, you know, mm-hmm. how it's actually impacting people and will continue to. And I, I guess saying this, and we've been doing a lot of research in this area because it's obviously pops up all the time when you work with children and families and it's a real struggle for families as well, is that you don't want to fear or, you know, put people off, but you want people to, I don't know, be empowered with information so they can start to be really mindful maybe in what, they do themselves with social media, but actually what their children are doing. And and I think if we knew that, if we thought, wow, this is system that they're tapping into with these apps and games and things is as powerful as it is for drinking alcohol or smoking, mm-hmm. it's changing their sleep as well. Yeah. And so then cognitively, you know, if they've been on devices all night and they're getting, behind, you know, this is older teens, of course, getting behind the wheel of a car or something, 
it's as if they're impacted by alcohol as well. So, but then their cognitive ability to do well in tasks is really poor also. Mm. So I want to move on now to talking a little bit about how parents and caregivers can help their children, so their primary school age children, build more resilience. Mm -hmm. But I just want to see, can you kind of clarify for us, what exactly is resilience? Because we kind of throw the term around a lot. What are we trying to achieve? Okay, so I guess um, resilience is one of those buzzwords that's come out a lot, hasn't it? And I think it's, um, it's being able to persevere or continue despite adversity. Okay. And so that's, I guess that's more the definitions we use, like the older definitions of bouncing back. I don't think it means, so when you're thinking about, okay, because we're, we're all in struggle at the moment, we've all been having to overcome challenges and things like that. And and life is challenged. I think when we actually talk to children, you will come against challenges and, and you want to give them the the problem-solving skills, the, the the ability, you know, to be able to actually, you know, really know that challenges will come their way, but how do we deal with that mm. and what do we do with that as well? And I really like one of um, Rolf Emerson's quotes, and I think it really captures resilience beautifully. The greatest glory in living lies not in ever falling or failing, but in rising every time we fall. Mm, that is good. Okay. Mm. That explains it well. Yeah. And I think, you know, because I think we're so focused on trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that, but we're actually failing to see the growth that comes out of it. And positive psychology has a beautiful way of, you know, describing that post-traumatic growth disorder. So I think it gives people hope that when they go, oh, there's all these things going on in the world, we're all going to be so traumatised. But if you talk to anybody like we get to in clinic about story, no one will ever tell you a story of how they thrived when nothing was hard. Mm, It's always about, you know, how did we thrive through the struggle and what did we learn about ourselves? So it's a nice kind of way, I think, to to look at, you know, what we can actually be and and I guess the questions we can be asking as well. What did you learn about yourself after you know, that tricky thing happened at school or, you know, what would you like to do more of? So there's a lot of things that we can help with that resilience as well. And I suppose it's not um, about saying, sort of saying to the children that they shouldn't have those feelings or feeling sad or down Mm. or anything. It's just how to then work your way Mm. back up. And Mm. yeah, so not like, oh, you'll fine, get up and go. (laughs) Yeah, that's quite dismissive sort of emotion coaching. And I guess, and I think that's the cornerstone because a lot of people will say to us, well, positive psychology, like pixies and unicorns, you've got to be happy all the time. No, it's really about checking in on and connecting with your body, your emotions, what are the sensations that you're feeling in your body and and then if there's a lot of sadness or anxiety, understanding what is that and, you know, anxiety itself can be actually um, protective to get us out of, you know, really difficult. It's a you know, evolutionary part of our survival. But then learning how to dial it up and dial it down. You know, if we're in sad for too long, you know, we can become stuck. So how do we kind of recognise that and then actually have the skills to be able to do something about it as well? So mm. lots of developing those kind of strategies. And lots of people already have those within, you know, the, they've got their own strengths. So if we can fan those strengths as well, they can go, oh, I have got this, I can do this. And children are great. That's why I guess we like working with children and, and teens. Yeah. <laughs> 
And so what are some of those practical things that parents can do with their children, um, I suppose, in everyday life and also at times of when they're really having some real troubles? What are some things that we can do to help them build their resilience? Well, I think, you know, the, the first thing is about connection and, you know, how we encourage and help young people develop is through empathy, you know, but we have to start with ourselves. If we're too rushed and we're not actually validating what their experience is. And so it can be really simple like that real listening, validating. And, you know, if they do trip over like and say, oh, you know, and they say, oh, it's really hurting. Oh, you're really hurting. I can see that. So it's just stopping to, because validation is huge when young people and teens are constantly dismissed or invalidated, it changes their story. They, They set up these internal kind of stories of, what I feel isn't good enough and disconnect with their bodies too. So we really want them to connect. And of course, we don't want to stay in that for too long of, you know, you know, too much of something can't, you know, isn't helpful either. So, so that's, that's one way. There's so many ways. So I think empathy and validating, I think meaning and purpose. I think, you know, that's a huge part of who we are as people. And I think that's why you'll be seeing out in the business world, the, you know, the world of work where the great resignations are happening because people are realising after COVID that what is my meaning and purpose and does this workplace align with my values? But we can start to give young people meaning and purpose from a really young age and it might be through chores, it might be through, you know, responsibility, going out and petting someone's cat or showing, you know, with great empathy how we can take care of other people as well. So those are the things. It doesn't have to be huge meaning and purpose like the Mandela's of the world and <laughs> ending apartheid. But, but that's, and I think that's the biggest thing that got me through my childhood adversity was actually being able to have that um, meaning and purpose of, you know, working with children and feeling like you're making a difference. And, mm. and that keeps me going to this day to the work that I do as well. That's some really good examples there because it is one thing I think can add pressures to maybe older kids or maybe teens and uni students like, what is my meaning and purpose? And trying to find that thing like it has to be this big thing. But yeah, it might be as simple as doing a little bit of volunteering or walking, you know, um, an elderly's dog or, you know, any small activity can be a way of finding purpose. Even like little people, like having a little routine, like mm. emptying the dishwasher, that's meaning and purpose mm. and, and celebrating that's how we're all connected as family. So so they can be, you know, some, you know, really beautiful parts. And then, you know, more to that is actually, you know, the connection we cannot emphasize, overemphasize, I think, you know, connection and having, you know, people talk about, you know, having a hero or having a mentor. And I think this is where it's really powerful because I'm sure we're not only going to be talking to parents here, there might be other people as well. Everyone can make a difference to a child. Be, be someone's hero, stop and listen. And if you see a child struggling with those behaviour, maybe ask the questions, develop the relationships because that's the thing that can actually change people's resilience of having, and you'll talk to lots of people and they'll say, yeah, I had my grandma or I had the neighbour that was always kind to me or somebody. Mm-hmm. That actually builds resilience too. It's really powerful, that whole village to raise a child kind of concept. It's, I mean, the science proves it. That's part of resilience as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking that it's the village around. It's not all, <clears throat> obviously the parents feel so much pressure to 
be good within themselves, feeling well within themselves because of the stresses of their lives as well, then having to look after their children, but also knowing that there are other caregivers and people around that can help support the children as well. And that's probably a good thing then because they can interact with other people and find positivity there as well. And so at Core of Wellbeing, what are some programs or services that you work with to help parents and children through these sorts of things? Uh, Well, we've been fortunate, like probably for the last 10 years, we've um, worked closely with WA Child Health Services and we've been um, running their parenting um, groups and it was great. We were, of course, before COVID, it was face-to-face and then we're like, oh, thrown into this world of (laughs) online, here we are. So, But we were able to quickly adapt and offer those online. So we do that for, um, I guess, families through that program. We deliver also um, seminars online as well. And, of course, we always work in community. We do as much volunteering as we can, but we offer coaching. So the coaching can be for parents, psychology as well, so working one-on-one with children as well and, and families. And we are developing and have been developing some programs where we work um, with groups of children and so... They'll be like year sixes. Um, We'll hopefully get it down to the younger ones as well, but also um, older year sevens and beyond as well, teens. And there's some really great programs where we actually focus on all of these things, so resilience and strength building and, you know, thinking about their growth mindset or, you know, best friend voices so they can actually start to tune into, you know, what they say to themselves as well because, Mm. you know, what we tell our brain and body really matters as well. When you tell children that because... Most adults don't realise that as well. What have I been saying and how does that impact me? So they're really cool skills that we can teach from such a young age. And, yeah, we've been loving that work. That's really fun, actually. That sounds amazing. That's really cool. Yeah, the internal dialogue is a a bit of a nasty (laughs) one at times, isn't it? It just can go and go and sometimes it can be very hard to switch that off. So, yeah, finding how you can... um, Starting that um, skill from a very young age would be, yeah, fabulous. That's so fun. And because children are so so much more malleable than, mm. you know, adults as well, they really get this stuff really quickly and they're like, oh, and they'll start to put it in practice because they haven't been practising maybe negativity or worry for as long as, you know, maybe some adults have. Mm. So they can switch it up quite quickly. Mm. Thank you so much for your time. I could keep talking to you for a very long I time. I could probably talk things. for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I just, um, can you let us know where people can find you, social media and website? Yeah, so definitely at our um, website is a great link through. So that's www.coreofwellbeing.com.au. <laughs> Fabulous. And socials? Are you just core, core of wellbeing on? Yeah, core of wellbeing. Yeah. yeah. Fabulous. And Insta and everywhere else. <laughs> Fabulous. We have those links on show notes, so it's <laughs> easy to click through and find you. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, thank you so much for your time again. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Unscripted with Alex. This show was brought to you by Batika Co.